G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth2letteru.org. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of The Moses Scroll, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hello, Jono. How are you, my friend? Doing very well, thank you, my friend. Except, uh, having just mentioned the Tanakh Tour, we we were well on our way to a full bus. uh, And... Considering that there are still complications, some uncertainty to do with COVID, considering, you know, because we're dealing with various countries, people coming from various countries on the Tanakh tour, as they do year after year, but also considering the unrest, uh, the significant unrest in Israel, you know, that going on with the Palestinian Authority, that which obviously is going on in Gaza. Uh, yep. It's a little calmer now, thank God, and hopefully it will, will remain so. But there's also reason to, you know, still mm-hmm. be a little concerned going forward. Uh, we yeah. don't have to go into the details of that. But what we did decide to do was postpone yet again, Ross. We had to postpone yep. the Tanakh tour to 2022. Uh, and we would love for <laughs> listeners to join us. We'll have dates on that uh, sometime in the very near future. And we'll, we'll announce when those dates will be. It'll be... Uh, most likely again November uh, 2022 but it's been too long since we've been in Israel I tell you what I'm starting to feel it yeah it really has and you know the old saying absence makes the heart grow fonder so yeah. I, as uh, Facebook memories come up and I look at photos of us in the land I think wow we've got to get back but we, oh, we as back. we've stated we really want to focus as safety and security as our top priority mm-hmm. and uh, we want this to be enjoyable and that's what we're aiming for and as soon as we get the green light we'll set that up give people plenty of notice and let them get their seat on the bus so I know people will appreciate that and, and we want to make sure that everything's open and fully functional and we're getting reports that that's just not the case at this point. Mm. So, so yeah. anyway, yeah, we're, we're, when it's time, we're going to go and we're going to bring a lot of people with us and have a great time. So, that's it. And so we'll have more to say on that in the near future. Moving on, I put a post on the Truth to You Study Group. Truth to You Study Group, dear listeners, Truth Number Two Letter You Study Group on uh, Facebook. Um, yeah. You know. Why don't you join? You're welcome to join that and uh, get you in on the conversation. Put it to the listeners um, yesterday on the group. I said, one of my favorite jokes that Tovia Singer once told me. Yeah. He said, why did God create uh, Mormons? And we've spoken about this before. Why did God create Mormons? And the answer is so that Christians would know how Jews feel. Uh, the point being <laughs> that <laughs> the point being that Mormons have attached uh, to the Christian Bible, the Book of Mormon, in the same way that Christians have attached to the New Testament uh, or have attached the New Testament to the Tanakh. So yeah. I said, I said, many of us here in this group, and, and certainly true of the um, Truth To You listeners, uh, mm-hmm. many Truth To You listeners at one point dared to consider whether or not the Tanakh was the more original, authentic, and authoritative text. Yeah. Uh, such consideration was not to be taken lightly, as it also implied that the New Testament was a less authentic uh, and certainly less authoritative uh, document. Nevertheless, yep. I went on to write, uh, consider we did, and we did so out of a desire, Ross, to love and obey God in truth. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really one of the reasons why it's called truth to you is because I, I'm not going to tell you, we're not going to tell you what you necessarily want to hear. We're not going to necessarily pander to your you know, the decisions that you've already made. We like to make available to the listener Maybe some uncomfortable um, th- things outside your comfort zone 
that are going yep, to force I you agree. to think outside. Out, yeah, it, it's just going to be a little bit um, uh, things that you're not necessarily going to hear anywhere else. And I think people appreciate that of truth to you. Well, evidently they do because they keep coming back. That's and, right. Um, uh, so uh, I wrote, so, out of a desire to love and obey God in truth, and I said, but what if there is an earlier mosaic text, something more, something older, more original, more authentic, and therefore more authoritative, something written in, say, Paleo-Hebrew, uh, a sort yeah. of proto-Deuteronomy, would you dare read and consider it? And mm-hmm. a lot of people uh, responded positively to that and go, well, yeah, of course we, we, we would consider, we'd read it and consider it. What is the harm in taking right. time to read something and consider uh, whether this may be an authentic document or not. This is where uh, we're at. This is what we've been fascinated with for well over a year. This is what you have written your book about. Uh, for people who are just tuning in, really in a very small nutshell, um, how do we move forward from here? Just give, give us the preliminary information. Well, I, th- I think it is important to assess this document. Of course, we're talking about a manuscript which was presented in 1883 to the European scholars uh, by a person who had come into possession of a very interesting text. In some ways, it appeared to be uh, like the book of Deuteronomy. A lot of similarities with Deuteronomy, all of which in this manuscript, or I should say manuscript, strips because it was 16 leather strips Mm -hmm. all of it is material that we're familiar with at least partly uh, based on our study of the Torah the Pentateuch Mm -hmm. and uh, so this particular document uh, I tell you it does present some challenges but it is very fascinating you know I, I mean when people study this sort of thing for instance when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered a lot of our listeners know very well the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, a lot of times I have people ask about the Isaiah Scroll, for instance. Here is a scroll that was untouched by anyone, Jewish, Christian, you name it. No one mm-hmm. touched it for 2,000 years. And as soon as scholars were able to study it, I know I was very interested as soon as I heard about it to study it. What are the differences? What do those differences mean to a student of the Bible? This particular manuscript, you and I have talked about this offline, not on the show, but we really want to begin to look at this document that was brought forward in 1883 Mm. and consider it. Uh, Because, first of all, if you're looking at an English Bible, I'll just say this by way of introduction, if we're looking at a JPS, for instance, or a Koran text, or uh, I don't know, any number of other uh, Jewish or Christian uh, English Bibles of the Hebrew Scriptures, you're not looking at the very autographed copies, meaning when you pick up your Humash, you're not looking at the actual document that, say, Moses wrote. But you're looking at something which we've been told has been faithfully preserved down through the ages. Mm-hmm. The question now is, and, and I wanted to use this term, but I, I want to explain it. When people hear the term critical scholarship, they immediately get a little uneasy, you know, because, you know, I don't want somebody to be critical, but it's really, we're looking at sources. We're talking about who wrote what and when. And this particular document brings some things to the fore that I think are worth considering. And so, 
last week, I'll just tell the listeners, you brought to my attention and you brought up this possibility. We've talked a lot about the story, but we've not really talked a lot about the text. Mm. So, so how could it be, Jono, that people like me and people like you who love the scriptures would even entertain the possibility that this manuscript might in fact represent an early uh, version of a Torah document. That's the way I'll kind of kick things off. And I, I think it's important that we talk about this because we want people to understand. It's not like you're going to be reading stories that you're not familiar with, but the version might vary slightly. Is that fair? That's fair. And that's we're going to be highlighting that going forward. Now, the reason why, I mean, we wanted people to be familiar with the story. You and I have spoken about the story of Shapira, how he came uh, into possession. Uh, with, with last A uh, couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, uh, the book by Bleak, An Introduction to the Old Testament from 1860, Frederick Bleak. Uh, Bleak and uh, yeah. uh, the reason why Shapira got it out of the bank vault that he had in Jerusalem after five years um, that he read that. We, we've spoken about all of these details, and you can get that in significant detail in Ross's book, The Moses Scroll. Uh, the website is themosesscroll.com. Now, within themosesscroll.com, uh, within The Moses Scroll, the book, is a translation and a transcription of yep. the actual scroll itself. And we haven't gone into great detail with that because we wanted to wait until people received their copies um, before we do that. Now that you have your copies, we can certainly dive into it. If you don't have a copy of the Moses Scroll, uh, if you read Hebrew, you can find it on um, Ross's Academia page, uh, right. which it, we'll put a link because you've got some, I mean, you've got some great resources here and yeah, uh, yeah. look at some of these articles. But you have it there, uh, the various uh, transcriptions that were done in the day in the 1880s. Uh, you have those there to compare uh, in the Hebrew, and, and people can see that there. You can, we, we, you've also got, say, um, and I shared this on the group in the thread, you have the Decalogue of Moses W. Shapiro's yeah. Leather Strips, undoubtedly the most important part of this document. Absolutely. And I shared that, and that's available here on your Academia page. If you don't have a copy in the English and you prefer to have it in the English, we're going to be going through it for you, and it would serve well to have your Bible open to Deuteronomy. Is that fair, Ross? That is fair. And and look, I wanted to say a little bit more because you've you know, we've covered a lot of material, like you said, about the story, but one one thing I want to stress, when I was first introduced to the story, uh, it was through a wonderfully written book uh, by Hanan Tigay, and his father is a brilliant scholar of Deuteronomy. He, uh, Hanan tells the story in his book called The Lost uh, Book of Moses. When I first learned about the, the scroll, I'm going to define that a little bit better in a minute. It's technically not a scroll, but we'll get to that. But, but when I first read the story, I was made familiar with the story of this fantastic manuscript, or manuscripts, plural, um, through the work of Hanan Tigay. Hanan Tigay's father is a brilliant scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, he's the author of many, many publications dealing with the Bible, particularly Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is his specialty, and he wrote the commentary, which I have in my library, uh, the JPS commentary for the book of Deuteronomy. So this guy, of most people in the world, 
he's at the top tier of Deuteronomy scholars. Mm. So anyway, Hanan Tegay is a brilliant writer, an excellent author, and he pulled me into the story. So the story is fascinating in and of itself. But the thing that Hanan Tegay's book left me with was a burning question, Jono. What does the manuscript say? Mm. Because he doesn't say what the manuscript says. But but as I read through the book, I took notes because he kept making reference. And, and as I dug deeper, I found that there were a couple of transcriptions made in the 19th century, in 1883, and so I thought, you know, even though the scroll, as we'll call it, the the Moses scroll, uh, is missing, it was transcribed. So we have these documents, these leather strips, 16 leather strips of varying lengths, upon which were written in ancient paleo script, a version of the Torah story, let's call it. Mm-hmm. And and so when I found out that this thing had been transcribed, I said, oh, well, all I need to do is find it. I did find it, Jono. And, and what we're going to be doing in this series is going through what this manuscript says. So let me just say uh, it was transcribed, first of all. By that, I mean the scholars, two German scholars by the name of Hermann Goethe mm-hmm. and Edward Meyer, the first week of July, 1883, they, in a hotel room, the Hoffa Hotel in Leipzig, Germany, they had the strips before them in Shapira's room, and over a period of four and a half days, they transcribed as much of the document as they could read. Now, this thing was hard to read in places, um, I think, because of uh, because of age and wear, you know, some areas were dark, some areas were, it was difficult to read the letters. Mm. But what they did, they looked at the paleo and they transcribed it into modern Hebrew letters and they produced a 94-page book. By the way, this is going to be published. I'm going to publish that with a goal of September of this year, my second book, and it deals with the same subject, but it's going to really focus on this first uh, transcription that took place in Leipzig. So that's one transcription that we have. Now, so, sorry to interrupt. These letters are in German. Mm-hmm. You are, you're publishing for the first time an English translation of this. This is correct? That's correct. That's mm-hmm. correct. And, and other great researchers like Matthew Hamilton in Australia have done a lot of work on this as well. But as far mm-hmm. as publishing... Uh, this has not been published in English to date. So I'm going to publish Herman Guta, uh, his work, in, uh, in, in the fall of this year. Ho- maybe as early as July, but the goal is September. Excellent. Uh, as well as the backstory. So Shapira leaves Leipzig. He then goes to London, where the great scholar Christian David Ginsburg, the great Masoretic mm. scholar, takes up the challenge uh, by the British Museum has charged him, and the big scholars in that arena have charged Christian David Ginsburg to also study the manuscript, meaning he's going to produce a transcription as well. Now, he doesn't know, by the way, that Guta and Meyer have also published. They're, they're not sharing back and forth. So we get two sorry to interrupt looks. again, but that, yep. that's that's yep. really important, and I find that fascinating. He didn't have at his disposal their transcription. He didn't have that to work from. He didn't go, well, ah, this is hard. Let me see what uh, Guter and Meyer have uh, put that's down. That's right. 
he he That's didn't right. have that. So he, they're working independently of each other, uh, and we have two separate transcriptions as a result, which is just a fascinating thing going forward, Ross. That's right. And so what I was when I found this out that all I have to do is go online, thanks to the internet now and find these transcriptions. So I had read the references, and it was published in three consecutive publications of a literary magazine published in London called the Athenaeum. Mm -hmm. Um, And this particular work, it's a journal of literature, science, and the fine arts in London, England. This magazine, it's, it's really a fantastic, I love this magazine. Uh, but it ran from 1828 all the way up through 1921, and then we we don't get this magazine anymore. But three consecutive weeks in August of 1883, Ginsburg, Christian Ginsburg, published portions until he had published um, the entirety that he could read. Okay, mm-hmm. he published it in in the Hebrew. So all I did was go online and I downloaded this and then I made a transcription off of that. Now, one other scholar uh, by the name of Shlomo Gill, he's a researcher in Israel. Great mm-hmm. guy. He's done some fabulous work. Uh, I used references uh, to his works uh, when I wrote my book and I've corresponded with him. So here I have the transcription of Ginsburg published in August of 1883. I produced a transcription, making sure that I had every letter exactly right. Uh, Then I looked at the transcription of Guta. See, I have both of these side Mm. by side uh, when I started writing my book. And I felt like readers of the book needed to see what did this manuscript say. That, to me, was one of the most important. In fact, that was what I was going to do, and I wasn't even planning originally to write a book about it. I just wanted to produce the the manuscript Mm. so people could see what it said. Uh, So one of the ideas that I had early on, I wanted people to be able to see side by side or in some way because I think these two witnesses are very important. As you mentioned, they, they didn't know of the other one. In fact, Guta's publication didn't appear in print until the 1st of September, 1883, after Ginsburg had already published his, see? Mm-hmm. So they had no way of cheating off the other one, if you will. Or, or so, so whenever I decided to do this, I wanted to put them together in one document. Let me give you an example. So in the opening line, Ginsburg gives us a full line of text, whereas Goethe, they only had four days, remember, Ginsburg has about four weeks, but Goethe only captured three words in that first line. So the the way that I decided to show that was, in my book, The Moses Scroll, Mm. anytime a particular word or letter is only seen by one, but not the other, I would put that in gray font, a dark Mm -hmm. gray font. Anytime that both transcribers, Guta Meyer, they worked together, and Ginsburg saw the same thing, I made that text black. So that just tells me this is absolutely certain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I produced what I guess you could call as a composite transcription. With with clarification down the bottom in footnotes. That's right, with a lot of footnotes. Mm. Now, there's one thing that's come out two weeks after I published my book. Uh, Idan Dershowitz, Harvard grad, uh, Mm. brilliant scholar, 
he published his book, The Valediction of Moses, a proto-biblical uh, book, and, and that's available online. People can go get that book, too. It's a very academic approach. And by the way, Edan, as we've covered in previous shows, also believes this is an ancient text. Mm-hmm. fact, he goes so far as to date it as the earliest biblical manuscript that's ever been discovered. Now, that's a pretty yeah. bold claim. Yeah. yeah. So so one thing that Edan had that I didn't have, which is causing uh, me and you, we're, you and I are going to produce a, a new transcription. You're going to help me with this. And we're going to incorporate one thing that he had that I didn't, and that is Edan discovered in a book sort of a catalog of manuscripts that belonged to Shapira in his handwriting. Uh, his widow, Shapira's widow, donated this to um, uh, the library Strzok? in Germany, to Strock. that's right. Mm-hmm. And we then got those documents. Now that he's published his, I've incorporated those into the transcription that is now on my academia page. So what people will get is uh, whenever we have all four transcribers, we have Shapira. What did he see when he looked at these leather strips? And then we have Ginsburg and we have Guta or Meyer, depending on who did what strip. And then I put Dershowitz's in there as well. Hmm. So this gives us the best chance of understanding what this scroll said. Now, just to touch on one other point, Jono, when whenever I talk about a scroll, we typically think of a scroll like people see a synagogue scroll. You know, it's so many inches tall, 24 inches or whatever, and it's got, uh, you know, people notice what I'm when I say a column of text. This was a little bit different. What they found, these 16 leather strips, were represented 42 columns of text, but it was two manuscripts. So roughly, we have two manuscripts of the same scroll, let's call mm-hmm. it, um, which measured approximately four inches in height, you know, and that people think, wow, you know, a synagogue scroll is much, you know, a typical Torah scroll. But we know now from the Dead Sea Scrolls that some of these ancient scrolls were this small, hmm. four inches tall, and then about uh, 11 and a half feet long. So each of the two manuscripts would represent 21 columns of text, about the size, Jono, of the book of Hosea in people's Bible. That, that kind of gives you a reference. Mm-hmm. So it's shorter than the book of Deuteronomy considerably, which we've covered a little bit in previous shows. Um, but just to make the point, so you have two manuscripts, and Goethe and Ginsburg both say that with very few exceptions, these are close. We can't say identical because there are some slight differences, but it is a the same um, document, document, basically. It's the same document. And if if I remember correctly, they reported that it was written in two different handwritings. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes, so that's correct. It is. Yeah. This is this is where we're at, and for the first time, we're going to dive into that actual text. If you, as I said, if you don't have uh, the document in front of you, if you don't have Ross's book, The Moses Scroll, of which the uh, translation and transcriptions are in the back. Um, then you can certainly order that. Go to themosesscroll.com, get a copy. It won't be long before you have it in your hands. You can follow along with us. Uh, in the meantime, open up to the book of Deuteronomy because we're going to be going back and forth. 
Um, yep. Shall we? Shall we dive in, Ross? I think I think we ought to uh, at least begin because I wanted to make a point. Well, if if we can, Jonah, let's let's open up Deuteronomy chapter one. And the reason you mentioned Deuteronomy is because of all the books of the the Pentateuch of the five books attributed to Moses. One seems to be closer to what we see in this particular uh, manuscript, and mm. and that is the book of Deuteronomy. And there are reasons for that we'll talk about as we go through. But if we can go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'd like to kick off with the canonical text, the Masoretic sure. text. Uh, we can read the JPS, whichever you have out. And, and I would say, just read chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 5. I'm going to be using the, uh, as you and I seem to be using more and more often, uh, the Jewish Study Bible, and we've mentioned this many, many times. Uh, although, uh, and we won't get into this now, but you, you certainly champion the uh, Koran Jerusalem Bible as, a, as an excellent translation. But the, uh, the study notes in this is just absolutely brilliant. And we'll probably be using the... Um, uh, the maps in here as well. In any case, Absolutely. in this uh, in this study Bible, it kicks off like this: Devarim, uh, chapter one, verse one. These these are the words that Moses addressed to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan, through the wilderness in the Arava near Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Lavan, Hazarot, and Di Zahab. It is 11 days from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by Mount Seir route. It was in the 14th year on the first day of the 11th month that Moses addressed the Israelites in accordance with the instructions that the Lord had given him for them after he had defeated Zion, uh, King Zion, uh, King of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and King Og of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtarod, and Edri. On the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this teaching, he said. And then okay. we find ourselves in, uh, in verse 6, and we find out what he actually said. But there's the first five verses, Ross. Yeah, I was th- when I first discovered this through study, this jumped off the page at me once it was shown to me. The thing that's interesting is, obviously, the traditional view that is, I guess, championed by both orthodoxy and Judaism and Christianity, is that Moses wrote the five books. And we won't go too deeply into this because we've covered it before, but we'll show it throughout our study. But the the thing about this is, this tells us, verses 1 through 5 of Deuteronomy 1, uh, tell us that a narrator is writing this and not Moses. And there are a couple mm. of reasons for that that jump the page. Number one, you notice the third person. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan. So we're in the 40th year. Uh, the narrator tells us in, in verse two that this or three that this is the 40th year of the wilderness journey. And Moses is speaking what follows. But this is the hand of the narrator. And, and there's one other clue. It says that this is what Moses said on the other side of the Jordan. Now, we know, based on our knowledge of the Bible, that Moses uh, never crossed the west of the Jordan. He, he died on the east side of the Jordan. He never entered into the promised land. Mm. So whoever is writing this, Jono, is on the west side. 
So the writer from the west side of the Jordan, I think our listeners follow me, is saying these are the words, you know, the words I'm about to cover are the ones that Moses spoke to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this tells me a couple of things. This was written at a time later than Moses by someone other than Moses. Mm-hmm. We, we together so far? Oh, yeah. Now, now, the, and this is important to set the stage for what follows. Now, Jono, go to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, please. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if I can, just if you look at verse 1 of 34... It says, Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead, as far as the whole land of Judah, mm-hmm. etc., etc. So again, what we have here is a third-person account uh, of Moses' trek up to Mount Nebo, where he's shown the land and he's told, you're not going in. Uh, It goes on, it says that uh, Joshua will bring them in and Mm -hmm. so forth. And then it says, uh, never again, verse 10, Deuteronomy 34, uh, never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord singled out face to face for various signs importance that the Lord sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country, and for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, right before this, Jonah, it tells us in verse 5 through 8 that Moses dies. Again, clear evidence that another hand is writing this. Mm-hmm. So, so what this does is it sets the stage for a question. If we could recover what Moses did write, what would it say? Right. He clearly, these are the hand of a, a narrator. So what did Moses say? And uh, as we've talked about, Deuteronomy 31 mentions a little scroll that Moses finishes and he hands it to the Levites and and they're charged to keep it and so forth. Well, our Torah is not over yet. So I want our listeners to think about what would that scroll contain? And what this series, I think, is going to do is demonstrate and present a high, highly probable case for what that scroll actually is, hence the name of my book, The Moses Scroll. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that that kind of sets the stage. Now, beginning in our next uh, our next episode, I agree with you. We ought to work through line by line and just start going through this. And, of course, you're welcome if you have other things to bring up in this one. But this would be a good place to kind of leave people on the edge of their seat saying, hey, I want to know what this says. I see I see what you're doing, but, <laughs> but I can't let you do it because we have to at least. Okay. We have, to, right. at least, uh, we have to at least jump into uh, what you've quite rightly uh, called the editorial headnote of the Moses Scroll, okay. in that we have just read the way it is uh, represented in Deuteronomy, uh, and at least then we have begun the scroll, uh, and and we will systematically do so in in uh, coming weeks. Let me well, read let's it. Let's do this then. Wait, let me say this. 
If we're going to do that, let's read the opening and the end note. You want to do that and kind of okay. set the stage? We did that for Deuteronomy. Let's do it All for right. the Moses scroll. Even even better. Let's do that. Uh, okay. I'll read the I'll read the opening. I'll, I'll let you uh, do the end. It begins with, and this is by way of introduction, obviously, of of the document that we're dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's almost like a, a library note. You know, what, what, what scroll is this? Well, you only have to look at the beginning That's to right. see what it is that we're dealing with. It's like a little library note. Um, mm-hmm. It says this. These are the words that Moses spoke according to the mouth of Jehovah to all of Israel and to all, to all the children of Israel in the wilderness across the Jordan in the Aravah. Ross. Right. Yeah. The the interesting thing, you'll notice right away that it, like Deuteronomy, contains an introductory editorial headnote, clearly written by another hand at a later point. Uh, This also is from a writer on the west side of the Jordan, writing about events that take place on the east side of the Jordan. This is clearly, clearly not written as the rest of the document. Now, one uh, one interesting point, this document only contains the divine name, yod heh vav Jehovah, some say Yahweh, only occurs in the opening line and in the closing line. And we'll get deeply into that over the next several weeks. Uh, but this this is interesting. It's much shorter than the introduction to Deuteronomy and I believe there's a reason for that we'll talk about. Now, the last line of the scroll says this. These are the words that Moses commanded to all the children of Israel, according to the mouth of Jehovah in the plains of Moab before his death. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Now, in between those two passages, the only two passages of an 11 and a half foot scroll, uh, 21 columns in length, that is the these are the only two examples where the the four-lettered name of God appear in this text. Uh, it uses Elohim exclusively. Mm-hmm. and uh, and we'll so we'll get into that. But I think that this is fascinating uh, because it says more than what we're telling them at this point. Um, but this particular uh, opening and closing line, frame an otherwise uh, a document that otherwise only refers to uh, Elohim as Elohim. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder why that is. Equally interesting. Let me just throw this in. Alpe Yehovah. Does that exist in Deuteronomy, at least in the opening and closing of, of Deuteronomy? You know, it's interesting. This particular phrase, uh, it does not occur, all pay Yehovah, according to the mouth of Jehovah. Sometimes, by the way, this is translated in Bibles in English as at the command of the Lord or something like that. Mm -hmm. But this phrase does not occur in Deuteronomy chapter 1. It, In fact, it only occurs one other time in Deuteronomy Um, It occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 5. But this particular phrase occurs quite often 21 times uh, in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. So you have to wonder, uh, where does this phrase come from? and, And why is it that that exact phrase occurs only in the opening line and the closing line? 
Mm. What I'm going to tell people is this was appended. The opening and closing line was appended to this particular manuscript um, by a later scribe who is preserving the contents of this fantastic manuscript. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's, he's like you said, he's labeling it. Now, we know this from many books in the Bible, you know, um, you know, these are the words, and then it, it will say, like, for instance, how does Isaiah begin? These are the words of Isaiah, the son of Amos. This is one of those things. Scribes would do this so that a reader would be able to pick it up and say, oh, this is the prophecies of Isaiah, or these are the words of Moses, you know, etc. Mm -hmm. But But that's it. Now, the rest of the document the question becomes, and I wanted to leave people with this, Jono, from my side. Before I knew about Shapira's manuscript, you and I were studying deeply into this idea that was challenging to our faith, and that is this. We've been taught, I know I was taught, that Moses wrote the five books of mm -hmm. Moses. That's what they're called, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So my belief was that from Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy 34-12, Moses wrote that. But nowhere in the text does it say that Moses wrote that. So I began to wonder very, it was a little bit, I was apprehensive, but I, I had this question. What if he didn't? Is that, that doesn't shake my faith. What I was interested in is, okay, what did Moses write? Mm. And one of the things that I began to do, not knowing about this Shapira manuscript, was I began to study the Bible deeply looking for these signs. And here's what I found. We meet Moses in the book of Exodus, as you know, mm -hmm. and from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all three of those books, there is not a single verse that's written in the first the person. First person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I know our readers are very smart, but just to make sure that I'm communicating properly, nowhere in Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers does Moses speak in the first person saying, the Lord spoke unto me. Um, always in those three books, it's always third person. Now, when you mm -hmm. get to Deuteronomy, something interesting happens. In Deuteronomy, we get some first person. Not all of it is first person. But Deuteronomy is the only book that contains first-person narration by Moses. So I began to think that the book of Deuteronomy was somehow uh, representative of what Moses originally wrote. And, and so I began to ask those questions. Okay, well, if Moses wrote this, someone else must have tacked things on and I'm not suggesting that it's not uh, necessary to look at or beneficial. I'm just making mm. the point. Mm. And so as I began to come to this, I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. It changes the way I think about certain things. Uh, and so that was my goal was to find what Moses wrote. And that drove me into this. And so I began to make a list seven times in the Torah. It says that Moses wrote such and such, all third person references, but you begin to capture those. And I do this in my book. So people that read it will see this. You begin to identify what was attributed to Moses. And what is interesting is this, the scroll that we are going to go through 
contains all of that and nothing more. And that really made me think, wow, Mm. this document seems to be very interesting in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a good place to leave it. That is the reason why we have been absolutely uh, consumed in study of of this document. I'm uh, greatly appreciative of the work that you have done in this regard and the book that you've produced. Again, The Moses Scroll, you can get it at themosesscroll.com, themosesscroll.com. If you haven't got it already, you should get it and follow along with us as we go through what is potentially the most important document of all history, of of all time. Uh, yeah. That's where we're going to leave it. Thank you, Ross Nichols, my dear friend. Hey, thank you, Jonah. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be exciting. I think as people get into this story, they will see why two men who truly love the biblical uh, revelation have gotten so into this uh, because it's going to become very evident as we work through the text. Mm -hmm. This time next week, dear listeners, and in the meantime, have a great one. Have a beautiful week. Mm